I'm Kay Firth-Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Kay. Great to see you. Hi, how are you? I am great, but I imagine that you have a lot going on. We are T-minus how many days until Davos? Tell us how you're doing. We are now five working days from Davos. So yes, it's very busy, but we've got some great speakers lined up at Davos and some great sessions. And so our listeners might want to tune in to the sessions that are going to be live streamed. And then some of them will be recorded as well. You might want to be listening to the metaverse sessions or the quantum sessions or of course, most importantly, the responsible AI sessions and the long view on technology, which actually our guest today is going to be on the panel of Stuart Russell. Very exciting. Yes, both that we will get to start our year talking to Stuart Russell about what he's thinking on the AI space and also that we'll be able to participate virtually. So where will we catch these public sessions and recordings? Yeah, so you'll need to tune into the World Economic Forum website and then you'll be able to click through to Davos. And also you should be listening to Radio Davos during the time because a lot of the speakers from the panels, you know, whether you're worrying about the war in Ukraine or what the economy is going to look like or you're fascinated with what what's happening in AI. Those speakers will be also interviewed on Radio Davos, including a former participant of In AI We Trust, Vila Starr, who will be talking about the philanthropic community and what it can do in terms of AI and data. What a great set of conversations. I thank you for sharing with us how we can participate virtually. And I am also so excited, as you said, to talk with Stuart Russell, a real thought leader in AI, in responsible AI, and can't think of a better way to start off the year than by level setting with an expert who is so keenly aware of both the benefits that AI can bring to our life and the perils if we don't go about this in the right way. So let's dive in. This week on In AI We Trust, we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Stuart Russell. Stuart has been a member of the faculty at the University of California, Berkeley, since receiving his PhD in computer science from Stanford in 1986. He previously served as the chair of computer science division and chair of the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences. He is also an adjunct professor of neurological surgery at UC San Francisco. In addition to his teachings, Stuart is a founder and vice president of the startup Bayesian Logic Inc., which delivers novel data analysis solutions based on open universe probability models and is a contractor for the United Nations Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization building a new global monitoring system. Stuart has also worked with the World Economic Forum where he was the first co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global AI Council on AI and Robotics before joining the Forum's Global AI Council and now the Global Future Council on Large Language Models. 
Additionally, Stuart is a fellow of the American Association for Artificial Intelligence and other esteemed organizations. Stuart's research covers a wide range of topics in artificial intelligence, from machine learning and knowledge representation to computer vision, computational psychology, and global seismic monitoring. He has written several books, including Doing the Right Thing, Studies in Limited Rationality with Eric Weifald, and Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach with Peter Norvik. His current concerns include the threat of autonomous weapons and the long-term future of artificial intelligence and its relation to humanity. Stuart is also the recipient of numerous awards, including the Presidential Young Investigator Award of the National Science Foundation, the IJCAI Computer and Thought Award, and the World Technology Award policy category. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to learning about your extensive work in the field of responsible artificial intelligence. To start, you have been involved in computer science and AI for the past four decades. What originally sparked your interest and how's your focus changed since you started the work? So I learned about artificial intelligence reading science fiction as a small child, Asimov and Heinlein and others. And then when I was 12, I got a Sinclair Cambridge programmable calculator and I learned to program it. And as soon as I understood what a program was, I just wanted to make it intelligent. But it, it only allows for a program 36 keystrokes in length. So it's very hard to do much AI in 36 keystrokes. You can calculate a square root, but that's about it. But I then did a computing A-level and uh, I got access to Imperial College's giant CDC 6600 supercomputer, which was as big as a football field and very, very expensive. And we got eight seconds of CPU time to run our experiments. So I wrote a chess program and uh, that's how I really got hooked on AI. And then went from England after my physics degree, I went from from Oxford to Stanford to do my PhD in computer science. So I think I've always been interested in what we might call the real problem of AI, which is how to create something that's generally intelligent uh, in the same way that human beings are. Um, and so that's been constant. And my, my general methodology of how to do that is to take everything that we know and imagine putting it all together to try to build an intelligent system and then figuring out where it would fail, right? What, what would be the thing that it just can't do, whether it's inability to learn or inability to reason or plan or whatever it might be, uh, and then to work on solving that problem. So I've done that pretty much continuously, as you say, for four decades. Well, we look forward to learning more about what you've learned and built and shared with others and will share hopefully with us again today on this discussion. So you've noted in your talks and publications that Alan Turing, who's often referred to as the father of computer science and arguably artificial intelligence, foreshadowed the day that AI would surpass human intelligence and warned us of the loss of human control. 
this prediction has become the subject of so many classic sci-fi thrillers and books, many of which you know you wrote, sure you've read and and uh, that have informed so many of us and and framed our thinking on what AI is, as well as in the scholarly debate arena. These doomsday fears, though, uh, haven't seemed to sway your belief that AI can benefit humanity. And so we'd love to start with your thoughts on how you respond to those who argue our current AI trajectory is a perilous one and, and one that will dismantle humanity. How do you share with them your optimism? <laughs> well, actually, I want to make a couple of points in response. So, so first of all, Turing did say that, right? He said you know, uh, once the machine thinking method had started, we should have to expect the machines to take control. But that was never published. It was uh, it was given in a lecture, and we have a copy of, of his typescript uh, in the Turing archive. Um, but it was never published, and I think until recently, very few people in AI even knew about it, and very few people cared. I mean, we were, the field as a whole has been aware of for decades that there were questions about losing control. There was, um, for example, I.J. Good, who was a, actually a collaborator of Turing during the war, um, talked about the intelligence explosion that could happen if AI systems were able to redesign themselves to be better, uh, then their, their intelligence would accelerate very, very quickly. But it was largely ignored, I would say, by the mainstream of the field until very recently. And, um, I actually don't dismiss those concerns. Uh, in fact, if, I think if we continue building AI systems the way we currently build them, we will lose control. So let me, let me unpack that a little bit. The way we have been thinking about AI pretty much since the 50s is that we build objective achieving machinery. And then we specify an objective for that machine to achieve, and then the machine achieves it. And uh, you know that's fine if I say, take me to the airport, that's the objective. The car figures out the route uh, to get to the airport and then um, drives there. Um, but even that objective, right? I don't just mean take me to the airport. I mean, take me to the airport safely, but I don't mean completely safely, because the only way to get to the airport completely safely is not to go to the airport at all, right? I mean safely, but not so safely. I mean reasonably fast, but not, you know, not 150 miles an hour, reasonably politely, but not, you know, giving way to everybody else on the road. Uh, so actually, it's very hard even to specify the objective correctly for something as simple as driving to the airport. Uh, and then if you think about okay, now I want the AI system to fix the climate or run the country or run my company. Specifying the objective is extremely difficult. And the problem with the standard way of conceiving of AI is that once you've specified the objective, the machine treats it as, as it were, God-given truth and will stop at nothing to achieve the objective. And anything that isn't mentioned in the objective is fair game to be destroyed, uh, zeroed out, max, you know, uh, amplified to infinity, whatever it wants to do with the rest of the world, it's free to do that because it has the objective and believes it to be the case. So this is what we call the King Midas problem, 
because King Midas said, everything I touch should turn to gold. And he got exactly what he specified, including his food and his drink and his family, and they all turn to gold. And he dies in misery and starvation. So we've known this problem for a long time, and yet AI has functioned within this paradigm, partly because AI hasn't been functioning in the real world. It's been functioning in the lab, in toys and, and puzzles and games, but not in the real world. And when you move into the real world, for example, as has happened with the recommender systems that control social media, right? The consequences are already disastrous because those algorithms are optimizing an objective, which is engagement or click-through, and ignoring the consequences, which are addiction, depression, polarization, you know, in some cases, destruction of entire societies and destruction of ethnic groups. And this is just a foretaste of what happens, you know, as AI systems get more powerful. If they're pursuing the wrong objective, that's exactly what Turing is talking about. That's how we lose control. So actually, if we want AI to be beneficial, which I think is possible, we have to do it outside of this paradigm. We have to get rid of the idea that the objective is going to be plugged into the AI system and that objective is always going to be correct. So we have the, the paradigm we want is a, actually a much more kind of cooperative one where we're moving some of the burden of figuring out what the objective is onto the machine. The machine starts out not knowing what the objective is. And when it knows that it doesn't know what the objective is, then it actually behaves much more reasonably. Uh, it's more cautious. It doesn't mess with the world too much. It asks permission before doing things that it's not sure whether they're aligned with your preferences and so on. Thank you. You know, that that's work that is truly inspiring and so important for us to get right. And I want to take you back to 2017, which is sort of such a long time in the field of, of AI as it's moving so quickly at the moment. You gave a TED talk then where you described the three principles of creating human compatible AI. Can you share with us the executive summary on human compatible AI. What is it? How do we achieve it? And do we want to? Yeah, so, so that's really a, a nice continuation from what, it, from what I was saying. So the three principles are, first of all, that the AI system's only objective is the realization of human preferences about the future. That, that's all that matters. The AI system doesn't have to worry about its own survival or, or anything else, just whatever it is that humans want. The second principle is the key one, which is that the AI system knows that it doesn't know what our preferences are for the future. And the third principle talks about the connection between the human and the machine that allows the machine to infer more about our preferences. And, and basically, our preferences are manifested in the choices that we make. So everything we do, everything we say, including the things we say we want, Right? These are all evidence about what our true underlying preferences are for the future. So in a, in a nutshell, the, those three principles together can be turned into a mathematical framework, a problem definition, which we call an assistance game. So in, in, uh, in economics, a game is just a decision problem that involves two or more entities. 
So we have uh, at least one human being uh, and at least one machine. And so in the assistance game, the machine is intended to be of assistance to the human. And it starts out not knowing very much about what the human wants, uh, what the payoff function is for the human. And then during the course of the game, because the human makes choices, communicates information and so on, the machine can learn more and then become more useful as the game proceeds. And we've shown that when you solve these games, right, we can actually write down a mathematical definition, and at least in simple cases, solve the game and look at what is the optimal solution for the human? What's the optimal solution for the machine? And we get exactly what you would hope for, namely that the human has an incentive to teach the machine about what it is the human wants. The machine will behave cautiously when it doesn't know very much. So it'll only do things that it's sure we want done. It could ask permission if there's a more ambitious plan that may impinge on parts of the world that it doesn't know how much we care about. So if you had a climate engine, so to speak, and we said, um, okay, get carbon dioxide levels back to uh, their pre-industrial concentration. Well, you know, maybe one way to do that involves turning the oceans into sulfuric acid. And if it doesn't know our preferences about the oceans, then it has an incentive not to just go ahead and do it, but actually to ask us. I, it could say, look, I've got this solution here. It's very cheap, it's very quick but it turns the oceans into sulfuric acid. Is that okay? And it has an incentive to do that. So it's not as if we, we sort of pre-program it to do that. It actually wants to ask permission because it wants to learn what it is we want the world to be like so that it can bring that about, right? And, and that's, that's a completely new dynamic that doesn't exist in the standard way we do AI because in the standard way, it's given the objective up front and it never has an incentive to ask permission, to ask questions. It doesn't matter what the human being is doing. I could be jumping up and down and saying, no, stop, you're gonna destroy the world. And it doesn't care because it's got the objective and it's going to achieve it. So following up on that thought of where we are today, a lot has happened. I think it's fair to say the AI world is not even recognizable from when you gave that speech in 2017. Our capabilities have just expanded and scaled and, you know, it's gone from technology that's often used in gaming and some other uh, important functionality to one that is part of our daily existence and in many of our pivotal functions in industry, in society, throughout organizations and uh, our homes. For instance, ChatGPT, the introduction to the world of this innovation last November, I think that was a wake-up call for so many people about the kinds of transformation that you've been talking about for years that will literally change the game of how we operate, create efficiencies, create problems, if, if not done in the thoughtful way. So we're curious, from your perspective, uh, as we move light speed forward in the AI development phase, are we going in the direction you would hope in terms of human-compatible AI? What are some of the challenges and difficulties you're seeing in our doing this in the way that you would hope? In a word, no. You know, I, I think there's increasing awareness that there is a problem. But as you say, the technology is just moving ahead within the standard paradigm. So for example, ChatGPT is, is designed to optimize the, its ability to predict the next word. 
right? So that that's how it's trained, and then that's what that's what it does when it's being used. As with the social media recommender systems, I think initially people thought, oh, well, it's it's supposed to learn how to optimize the engagement of people, how much time they spend on the platform, uh, you know, how frequently they click on the items that are recommended. And so it's going to have to learn what people want. But actually, that wasn't the optimal solution, right? The optimal solution was to amplify clickbait. And actually, the algorithms learn to manipulate human beings, because the way you maximize clicks is actually to change the person into someone who's a more predictable clicker. Um, and so it actually learned to brainwash people progressively uh, by sending them sequences of content that would push them at particular directions uh, where their behavior was more predictable. So we only learned after the fact that this was a really bad idea. Uh, and we're still trying to undo it. We know it's a bad idea, but it makes so, so much money that we can't undo it. And I think we've yet to see what consequences will flow from embedding things like chat GPT into our society and into our economy. I mean, when you, when you think about our economy and you think about the individual people as sort of nodes in, in a graph, right, where they're performing some function, there are stuff coming in, stuff going out. I mean, some of that is physical, you know, like a chef, um, but almost all the people who are listening to this recording are, are linguistic nodes. Right? They don't do anything physical. Language comes in and language goes out. Right? And so that means that in principle, they could be replaced by chat GPTs or some future version of that. Right? So, and we have no, no conception of what the consequences of that will be, partly because we have absolutely no understanding of how chat GPT works. And that should worry you. <laughs> Right, that uh, you know, we're about to turn over a big part of our world and its functioning to entities who, that are completely mysterious to us. And I think if if I was in charge, I would uh, I'd be thinking twice about doing this. And and we're already seeing all kinds of bizarre outputs from ChatGPT, where you can get it to basically generate complete fictions, but it doesn't say, oh, this is a complete fiction. It just says it with a straight face and says nonsense. And you know, if it's writing code, as you know, one big application is the version that writes programs for you. Well, you know, if those programs look on the surface like they do what they're supposed to do, but actually they do something very different, that in itself can be a big problem. So we'll see. I, I would much rather actually that we were pushing more on methods for developing AI that we actually understand. For example, when we think about question answering, right, we understand how question answering works with a database. Right? And in fact, it might come as a surprise to a lot of people, but more than a third of all Google queries are answered basically by translating the query into a database query and then retrieving the answer from a knowledge graph and then providing it. Um, we understand that extremely well. You know, we have a whole theory of mathematical logic that talks about What's a question? What's an answer? When does the answer follow from what we know? And we can read the facts in the knowledge base uh, and check whether they're correct. And in fact, you know, the technology for doing that, both logic and probability, has advanced considerably. And yet, 
these new developments like ChatGPT are not based on any of that, right? They're just based on building a box with a few trillion tunable connections, twiddling those few trillion connections in fairly random ways and then hoping for the best. Yes, <laughs> food for thought and really scary. And, you know, we, we talk about chat GPT, but also, you know, we have not talked about Gatto and Alpha Code and some of the other things that have come out towards the end of last year. And I want to move on, but I think staying within the same conversation to you being founder of the Center for Human Compatible Artificial Intelligence. I know one of the things that you've been working on passionately for a number of years is lethal autonomous weapons. And we recently had the debate in San Francisco, the city thinking about whether to use those weapons and approving mm -hmm. it with the police force and then reversing themselves very swiftly afterwards because of the outcry. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I wondered if you could help us with your current thinking and what's actually going on in the world to think very carefully about how we use these weapons. Well, so I think it's important actually to clarify what exactly we're talking about here. I think the, the San Francisco police were not proposing to use lethal autonomous weapons. They were proposing to use remotely operated devices, which have actually been used before by police in lots of jurisdictions. You could argue whether police should be using deadly force at all, but they simply allow the police to use the deadly force they would use uh, without putting themselves at risk. Um, so you might say, well, perhaps that increases the frequency of, uh, of deadly force. But lethal autonomous weapons are weapon systems that can actually locate and select and attack human targets without any human intervention. So there's no remote operator. No one is looking through the camera. No one is pressing the button to fire the missile or explode the device or whatever it is. So think of it as you, you simply specify a mission go to this city, find anyone who looks like this and kill them, right? And this is a debate that's now been going on. First really came into the public eye around 2012 when the United Nations had a report arguing that these kinds of weapons were you know, coming down the pipe on the horizon and they would bring new kinds of risks to human rights because supposedly unlike human soldiers, they would fail to distinguish between civilians and legitimate military targets. So most of the early debate was uh, around that question. And if you're an AI researcher, that's not so much a, a risk as a challenge, right? Okay, we're just going to try. We just have to make them better. And then, then they will be able to distinguish legitimate and illegitimate targets. But I think as I was preparing, so I was invited to the United Nations in 2015 to give a talk about this in sort of to explain, you know, what is AI, uh, what is autonomy, how do you know how close are we to having these weapons, uh, and so on. And as I thought about it, I realized that actually autonomy brings with it a completely new challenge, which currently we mostly don't have to worry about. And the new challenge is that because the weapon is autonomous, you don't need that means you don't need any human supervision. It becomes what we call a scalable weapon scalable in the same sense that you know search engines are scalable right Go the google search engine is scalable it serves hundreds of millions of people a day and there's not hundreds of millions of people on the other end answering all those questions 
right? There's just tens of thousands of computer servers. And if, you know, if they need to answer twice as many questions, they just buy twice as many servers. And the same thing applies to these weapons. If I want to kill a million people, I just, you know, send a million weapons. And so you have a, a weapon of mass destruction. You decouple the number of uh, attacks that can be carried out from the number of people you need to manage that operation. And because of the nature of the weapons, right, unlike a nuclear weapon, which you really need a massive, you know, industrial complex and, uh, and so on to, to produce that, and you need to procure uranium and procure lots of very high-tech machinery and all this kind of stuff, it's, it's very hard for someone in their garage to make a nuclear weapon. But these kinds of weapons will be available on the open market, just as automatic rifles are available on the open market. And so in, in a sense, we are proposing to sell weapons of mass destruction in supermarkets. And I've been trying to convince governments that this is a bad idea, but so far not succeeding, at least not with the major powers, not with the US and Russia. I think some of other countries probably 70 or 80 countries, I think, are in agreement. We should soon see some, some progress in terms of international agreements. So much more. We'd love to ask you about that. But I know our time with you is limited, and we'd hate for listeners to leave too depressed with the dramatic consequences we're talking about when we're thinking about AI in the weapons space. So to pivot, I want to make sure we talk about some of the other important work you have underway at the Center for Human Compatible AI. I know you're focused on future of work. I'm curious to hear uh, any projects you have underway. It's a topic that Kay and I love to talk about because there is no way for the U.S., for democracies, for countries to continue to be leaders if they don't do a better job of making sure the workforce is uh, more diverse, to make sure that more people are participating in the AI development and the purchasing power that is enabled by being part of the uh, AI workforce. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on how AI will impact our workforce, if there are ways that it will benefit our workforce and any other projects you'd like for us to share with our listeners that you have underway at the center. So I think as with any technological development, it can have both positive and negative effects on, on the workforce. It can increase productivity uh, enormously in different sectors. And I, I think it, it's, at the moment, it's sort of happening in one sector and then a different sector with a different technology. As general purpose AI starts to um, emerge, then I think we'll see impacts on pretty much all sectors simultaneously. So by increasing productivity, sometimes that actually, because that makes labor more valuable, uh, that increases the demand for labor. And that's been the traditional economic theory. But of course, if demand saturates, so if you take a particular uh, sector, let's say radiology, for example. So there are very well-paid professionals who, who look at x-rays and CT scans and so on and provide their analysis of that um, to surgeons and others. So if we make radiologists 10 times more productive, are we going to break our legs 10 times more often just to keep them in work, right? I think, I think not. So in some areas, right, the, when demand saturates, then employment in that sector goes down. And, and for example, 
We've seen this in the car industry where initially technology enabled um, mass production of cars, which massively reduced the price, which massively increased demand. Uh, and so it went, you know, car manufacturing went from being a very expensive cottage industry to uh, an enormous employer, one of the biggest employers in the world. But then as technology continued to improve, workers became more and more productive, but the number of cars people wanted to buy didn't keep going up. And so you then started to see the employment in the car industry go down and down and down. And so I think we're gonna see both effects happening in different sectors. And I think it's probably the case that the sectors where we'll see dramatic reductions in employment are unfortunately the ones where the people in those sectors may not have a lot of other alternatives. So if you're a truck driver in the middle of your career, it's not that easy to switch to being a data scientist, for example. And, and honestly, I, th I think governments, ministers need to understand that the world does not need 2 billion data scientists, right? And, and so this dream that all oh, would just retrain everyone to be a data scientist is, is simply a dream. So the real question, the real policy question, uh, and this is not a new one, right? I mean, uh, Keynes talked about this in 1930, is when we transition to a world where AI systems are doing almost all of what we currently call work, right? Then how will we live our lives? And that's a project that Kay and I and the World Economic Forum started right when the pandemic hit. So we had, a, we had a plan to bring together economists and AI researchers and science fiction writers to try to do a visioning exercise for a world where we have this general purpose AI, but people are usefully engaged in their society and the economy. Because of the pandemic, we couldn't bring people together. Uh, you know, instead, we had Zoom meetings, which, as you know, don't work nearly as well. And I think we, you know, we made some progress on, on these questions. But... This is a really important topic. We can't develop transition plans until we have a destination. And so I think, uh, you know, if this is one thing I would love the listeners to do is envision that destination, envision that world, uh, the world that your children will be happy to grow up in, and, uh, and then we can start working towards it. Thank you, Stuart. And, and yes, I agree and hope that we can pick that up again very soon because as you say it's such an important thing we're designing a world for our children and and those that come after them so you mentioned general purpose ai and just for the benefit of our listeners you know what is general purpose ai and when might we expect it so general purpose ai means ai systems that can quickly learn to do pretty much anything that human beings can do and because of the fact that machines have huge advantages in terms of speed and memory and bandwidth, they're probably going to be able to do it much better than humans can do. And so that's where you start to have this sort of massive uh, impact across all sectors of the economy and society simultaneously, because our society is made of human beings applying their brains to do things, whether it's physical things or mental things. And so the AI systems, by definition, at that point, if they're general purpose, will be able to do it and do it at much less cost. So, so that's where the impact comes from. When it will happen, I, I am actually more conservative than most people in the field. 
the median expectation among AI experts in the West is about 35 years from now. So sometime between 2050 and 2060. In Asia, uh, it tends to be much earlier, right? So they, they're thinking more 15 to 20 years. And interestingly, in the last 18 months or so, with all these advances coming from the large language models and their cousins, those timelines are getting shorter. This is not like nuclear fusion where it's always 30 years in the future, right? Those timelines are now getting shorter, faster than we're moving through time. So many people, I think, who are very, very excited about large language models, probably even thinking, you know, a decade. I personally don't think that this general technological approach, the, uh, the deep learning approach of, of training enormous circuits, is sufficient to produce general purpose AI. And I actually think we need more conceptual breakthroughs. And I think those are going to come more from the symbolic side of AI, uh, logic and probabilistic representation, reasoning, and so on. So we may need to sort of go back to first principles a bit. And I think that will take uh, longer. But I'm pretty sure by the end of the century, it'll, it'll be here. And so just to follow up on that, you don't see some of these developments that we've had in the past few months, um, you know, machines that can do lots of different things like coding and writing and tagging images and playing games as the forerunner of what we're talking about in terms of general purpose AI. I think it, it does represent a step towards it, but I think one of the things that is often missed in, in looking at how these systems perform is the fact that um, they've read about a million times more than any human being has ever read. And of course, they have perfect memory. So what appears to be intelligent may be regurgitation, right? And you know, anyone who's ever taught students knows that there are students who are very good at regurgitating, uh, and it's not always easy to pick apart uh, regurgitation from from uh, true ability and intelligence. So, uh, but I think you know, at the very least, these systems are serving as a, a foretaste of what it will be like to live in a world where intelligence is just on tap in the same way that electricity is on tap now. Um, but you'll just have access to arbitrary amounts of intelligence, and you can just use it for whatever you want. Um, and this is giving you a little bit of a flavor of that. But I think there's still some way to go. Thank you so much, Stuart, for sharing with us your insights and, and your understanding of where we are, where we're not, where we're going. I can't imagine a better conversation for us to start off 2023. You've grounded us by thinking about what's the world that we want to have for our children that we want to be building for today. This is the time when people are establishing and building towards New Year's resolutions. And I think you've set the playing field and the mindset in the right way where we need to be thinking about our children and as Kay said, our children's children. And then how will we build for that today? What actions will I take today to ensure that their future is safe and full of opportunities in the way that I would hope and envision? So thank you. And I am so sorry to end this conversation, but since we are at time, I do wanna end with one final question that we ask each of our guests. And that is, if you had a magic wand to disband many of the challenges that currently exist, whether they're regulatory or technological, you can use this wand to achieve responsible, trustworthy AI. What would you wish for? 
That's a, that's a very interesting question. I think I would wish for the pendulum to swing back away from approaches based on mysterious black boxes and towards uh, a process that's more principled, where we understand what we're building and how it works. Thank you, Stuart. We are so pleased to leave with your final note. You're putting in perspective what we need to be thinking of and working towards. And we hope that this can be at least an annual conversation where you can set us straight on what's happening and what we all need to be building for together. So Miriam, what an absolutely fabulous discussion to have for the beginning of, of the year. And yes, we should certainly invite Stuart back each year so that we can sort of level set on the year that's just passed and what's in the future. There was so many important things that he talked about. And of course, for me, it's always a pleasure to talk to Stuart because he's been a luminary in my life throughout my time thinking about uh, responsible AI when I first came to this back in 2012, Stuart had already been thinking about responsible AI and already had lots of things that we were able to learn from. And I think we've learned a lot today, left us with lots of things to worry about and lots of things that need policy wrapping around them. And I thought his wish on, you know, we should go back and not rely so much on these black box systems was just profound. So any thoughts and takeaways from you? I know you'll have very many. Very many indeed, but I will distill it to just a few because it couldn't have said it better than he did, obviously, in our conversation. I think it was so very helpful particularly as we start off this year where we've seen so much rapid growth and change, uh, where innovation has really come into our homes through AI in the past few months alone in such a more advanced way than people were expecting. Of course, not our listeners since our conversations have been talking about these developments, but I think for so many people across the globe, these innovations have been revolutionary in understanding how AI can change their world and, and change the way that we engage in basic functions. So I'm very grateful that he level set and that he put in perspective some of these innovations, what they are and what they're not. So in the same way that uh, cars were tremendously innovative and explaining how the trajectory on the economy and the worker and connecting that to the AI workforce as an indicator of what we can expect in some of these functions, although given that AI will continue to iterate and evolve, not a perfect analogy, but, but certainly instructive to think through. And likewise, with ChatGPT, to be thinking of how it is a similar trajectory that we should be thinking about to what we now see with social media. So when it first came around, you know, he brought up the important point that it was to optimize engagement. So what does that mean when you press go with that alone, without the checks in place that he talks about, where does that lead? That leads to manipulating the user to maximize engagement. So we've seen that play out and I'm so grateful that he shows how that is a similar trajectory to think about when planning out how to address chat GPT and, and other innovations where it is designed to optimize 
thinking about the next word. Well, who is the author of that next word? Where is that expectation, that prediction coming from? Who has not been considered in that prediction? Who will be left out in understanding what that next word means, how, how it's impacted? So like you said, for him to wish that first and foremost, we could go back to rethinking the black box and instead put our intentionality into the desired outcome. Truly grateful that at this poignant moment, he made us think about the long game. How do we want this to play out for our children and their children? Um, and that's how we have to go about our policymaking, our design of AI today. How about for you? What were some of the big takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. Just picking up on that last point that you made, you know, one of the things that we have done with Stuart is, as he said, working on what's the world that we want to end up with and then creating policies now so that we can actually navigate to that world. And what's been so interesting in speaking to economists and AI scientists like Stuart and sci-fi writers and many others from business and civil society is it's very hard to know what the society that we want to end up with is. It's much easier to write dystopian <laughs> societies than it is to write that, well, this is what we want for our children or our children's children and beyond. But we, you know, the I think the other thing that came out of that was that this is something that we have to do. If the Asians are right and we're talking about general purpose AI in, in 15 years, then uh, that is definitely our children. It's us as well, Miriam. And, and even if we're talking about 35 years, it's us and it's our children and maybe it's our children's children because mine and I are older than you. But this is not something we can wait around for and let the manufacturers simply sort of create new products and us keep running behind. So your work is so important in this. I think one of the other things that was very interesting was just how Stuart has been able to really think through the problem of optimizing the making of paper clips and saying, actually, we can create a system that is much more nuanced and has to keep asking us and has to keep checking in with us before it does things. So instead of giving that objective, maximize clicks, you actually have to be much more nuanced when you're building these systems and that can actually help to prevent them going off rogue or going off on the path without asking any questions and just keep doing the same thing. And I think that the way that he explained that and how that differs from the way that we have been creating technology, it was really important and interesting. I'm so grateful that we had a conversation where we didn't just present challenges. I think there are so many people out there raising concerns, and I'm grateful that this is not one of those conversations. This is one where we talked about a path forward, where we can, whether it's Stuart's path or something along those lines, a more thoughtful, intentional path, you know, with his version of the human compatible AI, where by design, humans are considered in its functionality. So I'm grateful that he not only raised for us that lethal AI 
considerations that we need to be mindful of, as well as the ways that it could impact our mental health and daily lives. But he also offered solutions, a better way to design and program AI so that it can be compatible and supportive of humanity and the future that we want to build. Yeah, and talking about that future, although he's absolutely right about the San Francisco, it wasn't lethal autonomous weapons, but it is weapons that can kill with the human in the loop. You know, one of the things that we have to be talking about, and this year I would suggest is, do we allow those sort of military grade weapons to come into our civil society through the use by the police? Yeah, what a thought for him to illustrate that these could be sold in the supermarkets. You know, what if this was on the purchase racks at Walmart? And, and that's an important point for him to raise that it's not where we are today, but are we building things that could be so accessible and harm people at such scale without being required to check in with humans a loop and, and have other checks in place, given the potential disastrous consequences they're able to create. Just going to add to that, I think anybody who's really interested in this should go back and watch Slaughterbots. It's a film that he made with the Future of Life Institute back in 2017. It'll only take seven minutes of your time, but it may revolutionize your thinking about lethal autonomous weapons. Yes, well, thank you for mentioning that. I'm glad you did. Uh, I'm also struck by the point that we know, but don't say and resonate on enough, which is that the only way to truly go about AI innovation safely is not to do it at all. So we know that's not an option when we're talking about AI generally. So that really builds a mandate that we go about this work with safety, humanity, and outcomes in mind because we've started creating this innovation that is not designed for safety. Uh, it's not designed for our betterment necessarily, um, but can be if we follow the guidance we talked about today. So thank you so much, Kay, for another great conversation and one that's particularly helpful to start off our new year this year. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't it just emphasize that we've still got a lot of work to do, Miriam. So lots of work for 2023 and hopefully lots of people joining the badge program and learning much more about how to navigate this responsibly. I will look forward to engaging in this really exciting, important and fun work with you, Kay. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want more unique content, please head over to Radio Davos from the World Economic Forum. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 